You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 5th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio, The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. The United States does not seek conflict with Iran or in the broader Middle East. But as President Biden has made clear, we will not hesitate to defend our people and hold responsible all those who harm Americans at a time and a place of our choosing. The U.S. launches strikes in Iraq and Syria, targeting Iranian militia. Then the U.S. and the U.K. carry out further attacks on Houthi rebels in Yemen. Where is this all going? Also ahead, after Turkey agrees to support Sweden's bid to join NATO, now it's Hungary's turn to decide. We'll ask whether Viktor Orban and his government will capitulate. We'll also look at this week's presidential election in Azerbaijan, widely seen as a foregone conclusion. Plus... I wanted something very elegant and to prove that we can have both and we don't need to look like a not trendy at all, you know, we can be trendy and sustainable. We meet a fashion designer for whom sustainability and style are both essentials. Plus the art market news and Monday's papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador has been re-elected to office. The former mayor of San Salvador describes himself as the world's coolest dictator and has been credited with turning El Salvador into one of the safest countries in Latin America. Turkey says it's ready to supply drones to Egypt after the two countries normalised ties following a decade of division. And Parisians have voted to triple parking rate for SUVs in the French capital. The proposals were approved by more than 54% of voters, although the turnout was 6%. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, the US and UK carried out fresh waves of strikes on Saturday night. Their targets, once again, Houthi rebels in Yemen. There were further strikes by the US last night as well. And these airstrikes come immediately after the US carried out attacks in Syria and Iraq on Friday. The purpose of the two or three operations on consecutive days was different. Friday strikes on Syria and Iraq were in retaliation for an attack on US troops in Jordan that left three soldiers dead and dozens wounded. Saturday's and last night's strikes were intended to stop the Houthi rebels from continuing their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. The US says this is just the beginning, but what is the combined effect? Well, I'm joined now by the Middle East correspondent Lizzie Porter. She joins us on the line from Istanbul and by Monocle's US editor Chris Lord, who joins us on the line from Los Angeles. Uh, a very good evening, very good morning to you both. Hi, good morning, Emma. Uh, Chris, morning. can I just begin with you? Uh, let's recap this, these strikes. A huge amount of military activity, not least last night. So, yeah, so we start from Friday, where there was 85 strikes in the course of half an hour uh, in targets across Iraq and Syria um, on essentially positions that involve set command and control areas, drone and missile storage areas, all linked roughly to the to a sort of collaboration of different groups uh, that are ultimately Iran-backed militias in those two countries. Then we go to Saturday and we see a resumption of US-UK bombing raids on, on the Houthi targets inside Yemen. US sort of 
continues that it's, uh, with a, a sort of bunch of strikes uh, on land attack cruise missiles and four anti-ship missiles prepared to launch against ships in the Red Sea. So the, it's been a sort of very quick uh, kind of, if you like, a sort of chain uh, of, of pressure being put on Iran-backed groups right the way from, from sort of Iraq and Syria all the way down to, to the tip of the Arab, Arab Peninsula uh, in Yemen. I think we have to understand, first of all, is that, you know, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was out on the press on Sunday in the US, uh, doing the US networks. And he was pretty clear. He said, you know, this is the Friday's attack was only the beginning of the US response. Uh, the region should really be braced, as he put it, for more steps to come. We've really only just seen the start of what the reprisal of, of the uh, drone attack on US uh, positions in, in Jordan that ultimately left three American soldiers dead. We're only just seeing the beginnings of that. And of course, the, the continued pressure on the Houthis remains. I think really also we have to understand as well, this is going against the backdrop of Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, on his way as we speak to the Middle East for a tour of countries there, trying to create some kind of truce, brief humanitarian pause, uh, and maybe lay the groundwork for some kind of stepping back from hostilities. Um, we'll talk about this proposed pause in just a few minutes because it appears this will be absolutely crucial to all of this calming down. But mm. Lizzie, Lizzie, when we just hear about all these indirect attacks, attacks on Iranian targets. There is no direct attack at Iran, is there? And this is being called a, a Goldilocks approach. The Americans have to get this just right. Yes, these are part of the proxy network or ally network of groups that are supported by Iran through Syria and Iraq. There are significant numbers of these groups in Iraq that, I mean, they are part of the Iraqi security forces, and that has left Iraqi officials uh, across the board, or quite a lot of the board, condemning these attacks, because you're saying, look, you're, you know, it was, you say that it was, you, you're wanting to attack Iran, but you're actually attacking Iraq. Now, the problem is that Iraq sort of allows these groups to exist on Iraqi territory, um, and has made them part of the security forces. Um, it, there are a panoply of various groups. They call them the, themselves the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Um, they exist on Iraqi territory with the blessing or, you know, the Iraqi government allows them. They don't have full, full security control over these groups. So they exist on Iraqi territory and they do attack American targets most recently after October 7th uh, in what they say is solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, but you're correct in saying that this is not, you know, they haven't gone and attacked Iran. If they it, attacking the proxy network in Iraq is and Syria is in some senses easier uh, and risks less escalation than targeting Iran directly. Both sides say they repeatedly say they say very similar things that we do not want to war, um, but that they will defend themselves. And attacking these networks in Iraq and Syria allows them, uh, allows America when they when they've done this retaliation to it's it, it, um, there's less likelihood of an escalation than directly attacking Iran, which would be seen as a declaration of war to which the Islamic Republic would respond. Now, there are still responses within you know, there are still 
what America has done is, and some in America are saying they didn't go far enough, they didn't kill enough, they haven't, um, you know, they haven't taken out a big commander like Qasem Soleimani, which is what happened in 2020 when the Quds Force leader uh, was killed in Baghdad. Um, but they have retaliated, and if you know, the, the point of not taking out, you know, some people say that the analysis is that if you if they took out someone more senior, then that would you know, it would that would it would allow Iran or force Iran uh, to retaliate again, which would lead to a further level of escalation. But but in the middle of all this, Chris, there is this sense that um, no matter what they are targeting, they are failing. The United States is failing to deter either the Houthis or indeed the rebel groups in Iraq that Lizzie has just talked about. I mean, the Houthis are finally getting that war with the United States that they've been craving for a decade. So all these groups, you know, they're, they're, they are ultimately sort of guerrilla groups. And, and as long as a guerrilla group doesn't lose, then it wins. And that's, you know, what Henry Kissinger famously said that about Vietnam. I think we have to look at here, there is a really dangerous moment here, which is, firstly, while Iran itself obviously hasn't been attacked here, these groups, these militias that the US has done these strikes on, and not just the Houthis here, but the, as Lizzie mentioned, uh, Islamic resistance in Iraq and that sort of umbrella organization that contains various groups that the US uh, strikes hit on Friday. These militias, while they are Iran-backed, they're not necessarily completely directed under the direct call of what Iran says and does. Who knows what ha might happen next from, from these various groups and how they might retaliate. It could end up being quite... Uh, this, these are the kind of moments when miscalculations happen. And it, this is where uh, sort of escalations that people blunder into them. And that's how it can end up happening here. I think there is also, I think there's also a very major reality is that the oxygen in the, in the room, if you like, for these various groups is the continued violence in Gaza. And the Americans are keenly aware that until that is uh, brought to a point where there is some kind of, uh, you know, aid easier to get in, some kind of humanitarian pause, even if it is with some guardrails and, and with a time limit, that oxygen is going to remain. And really, it's very, t very difficult to, to sort of bring these guerrillas to, to task because they have a mission here and they're not going to stop. Um, let's bring you in on this one, Lizzie, the fact that Chris mentioned that Anthony Blinken is on his way to the Middle East to try to ensure that some sort of pause in the conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas can be secured for a while. And it is absolutely essential, isn't it, that a pause in the fighting in Gaza is key to stopping a wider conflict from escalating? Yeah, I mean, these groups have been very clear that this is these attacks are linked to the fighting in Gaza. Having said that, in Iraq... This is sort of what I describe as the latest episode or the latest iteration of a campaign by the Iran-backed forces in Iraq to get the American soldiers in Iraq out. There are two and a half thousand U.S. troops on an advise and assist mission uh, at the invitation of the Iraqi government since 2014 in the uh, anti-ISIS operations. So this is and, and this has been there's been a campaign by uh, some political factions in Iraq 
for years, since at least the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian Quds Force leader in Iraq in 2020, to get these American troops out. They see it as a continuation of the occupation post-US-led invasion 2003. And so in that sense, it is not completely 100% linked to the war in Gaza, um, but it is part of the domestic campaign to get the Americans out of Iraq. And now, uh, with the American attacks on Iraq that have taken place most recently and, and most widely over the past weekend, but there have been previous attacks or responses to um, attacks on U.S. Base, bases in Iraq since October 7th. This is now, there is significant uh, political pressure in Iraq to get the U.S. troops out uh, and political will, everything in Iraq is a combination of practicalities and political will. And the political will for the Americans to stay is at the lowest point that I have ever seen it uh, in eight years of following Iraq. Chris, briefly, these efforts to bring about a pause in the fighting in Gaza, how likely is this to happen? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will, 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 I suspect, be very against that. I think that we have to remember the background to this is that there's been talks in Paris between Qatar, Egypt, representatives of the Israelis and also for, for the Americans as well to try and work out essentially really before we get to a truce. I think that the core of it is to try and get is to get the hostages out, really. I think that if that if that kind of breakthrough can happen, then the Netanyahu government will at least, I think, be more considerate to the idea of some kind of pause in its campaign. But I, I think without the hostages, that becomes very difficult. And I think there may be there may be some possible breakthrough brewing. I think there's so much pressure on Blinken to to get this right here uh, and to balance the need to support its ally, Israel, and its, you know, its desire you know, ultimately, I suppose, to get these hostages out uh, with also the kind of domestic pressure back home in the US about the the levels of violence that are being seen in Gaza uh, and, and the disquiet from lots of people within the Democratic Party who fear that they are going to be absolutely losing so many voters in this in this election year who watch what's happening in Gaza and do not see uh, the government, if you like, uh, sort of responding to the level of Palestinian uh, uh, sort of uh, the, the disruption to lives and, and loss of life there in Palestine, in, in Gaza. So I think there's 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 so much riding on this trip right now, um, because not least for sort of what, you know, what Lizzie's talking about, I think a little bit as well, which is this, this you know, this this growing feeling, if you like, that there is a, a, a real danger here of miscalculations when there are rockets flying around from one side of the Arab Peninsula to the next. Uh, and exchanges of fire like this. And this is when things go wrong and wars start. Chris Lord and Lizzie Porter, thank you both so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. in Budapest, 7.15 here in London. Now, just under two weeks ago, Turkey's parliament gave the green light to Sweden's application to join NATO. As it turned out, a deal involving the sale of 20 billion US dollars worth of American F-16 fighter jets to Turkey happened to play a significant part in Ankara's acquiescence. Well, this week, it's the turn of Hungary to debate Sweden's fate, fate, either in or out of NATO, and it may take more than some military planes for things to change. 
I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Susanna Vague, who's Associate Researcher at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on Central Europe and Hungary. A very good morning to you, Susanna. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So the Hungarian opposition has called a meeting in Parliament about Sweden. Um, What is likely to happen at this meeting and who's likely to go or not go? Yes, indeed. The Hungarian opposition has been very supportive of uh, Sweden's NATO accession and uh, they have called for an extraordinary session in the parliament to ratify um, the accession. But already in the course of the past week, the um, MPs of the governing parties have said that they are not going to participate at this meeting and they want to wait until the two prime ministers, the prime minister of Hungary and the prime minister of Sweden meet to discuss the accession. So what is likely to play out today, uh, because the meeting would be today, is that the representatives of Fidesz and the Christian Democratic People's Party are not going to participate. Uh, and the fact that um, last night a three-day government uh, session meeting between the ministers and the prime minister started in Hungary uh, is also indicating that uh, this is not going to be decided today. So just explain to us a little bit about well, how that demonstrates the, the level of division mm-hmm. and problems within the Hungarian government, not least with Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party, who consistently uh, put delays and put throw spanners in works all the time. Um, so within the government in Hungary, there is no division. Uh, this is a very, very centralized uh, government. The party uh, of uh, Fidesz is also extremely centralized. So um, if the prime minister wants something to happen, it does happen. If he does not want something to happen, it doesn't happen. So it is really up to the prime minister to give a green light uh, to his MPs to ratify um, the accession of uh, Sweden to NATO. And for now, uh, he hasn't given that. So that's that's the that's the reason why it's being uh, still delayed. Just outline to us, outline to us, if you would, the particular problem that Hungary has with Sweden joining NATO. And Tur- Turkey had issues on lots of levels, but what is it that Viktor Orbán and Hungary dislike so much about Sweden's joining NATO? Yes. So the thing is that there is no real bilateral debate here, and especially no bilateral. Uh, debate when it comes to security and defense matters. I believe that Hungary delaying the ratification of uh, Sweden's NATO accession also had to do with the fact that Hungary, the Hungarian government, has strong ties with the government uh, in Turkey. And um, Prime Minister Orban didn't want to go ahead with the ratification before Turkey. Um, In fact, It seems that, uh, on the other hand, there has been no uh, such consideration and coordination from the Turkish side. So Turkey went ahead, leaving Hungary behind. And now the prime minister is in a situation where he needs to navigate and uh, construct a narrative. And that is why we have also been hearing concerns about Sweden and Swedish um, representative MPs being disrespectful of Hungary criticizing Hungarian democracy over the years, which, well, they have every ground to, 
considering the domestic situation, but it is also no reason to delay the ratification of the NATO accession. What about the connection with Moscow? Because arguably Viktor Orban has better ties with Russia than any other EU state and NATO member. Arguably, it could play a role as well. At the same time, uh, the Hungarian prime minister did give a green light to ratifying Finland's um, NATO accession. So ultimately, I think it was more the relationship with Turkey that um, the government tried to navigate. Um, and, and in this situation, it probably was not uh, Russia that much. Susanna Vague, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme. I used to know, but I'm not sure now what I was made for. Song of the Year at the Grammys, What Was I Made For by Billie Eilish. But who were the other big winners? We'll find out later on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's time now on today's Globalist to have a look at the newspapers. I'm delighted to say that uh, to help us all out here, joining me in the studio is Terry Stiasny, author and political journalist. Very good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. How's life in the Stiasny world? Uh, it's pretty good, thank you. Excellent. Yes. I'm delighted to hear it. Uh, let's crack on with uh, the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is in Belfast. Um, huge events over the last couple of days. The revival of Stormont, the the, you know, the Parliament, which has basically been mothballed for two years, hasn't it? With, yes. with the Northern Irish uh, sort of economy and government sort of ticking over strangely without any leadership. Suddenly everything came back together again this weekend. A uh, huge, hugely, hugely significant um, moment. And now Rishi Sunak is joining the party. That's right. Um, yes, this get, as as you'd expect, this gets quite a lot of coverage in the in the UK papers, um, particularly in the in the Guardian and the Times. Uh, Rishi Sunak, who's already in Belfast, and he's arrived there. He's saying there's fantastic cause for optimism. Um, so you know he's really saying that you know we've made significant progress. Um, how important this is, uh, and of course you know it, this is a hugely symbolic moment. I mean he's going to be meeting Michelle O'Neill, who is uh, the new first minister, the first time there's been a uh, Sinn Féin first minister ever. Um, you've also got, got two women in charge, Michelle O'Neill and uh, her deputy, the DUP's Emma Little-Pengeli. Um, and it's just interesting, you know, how far people ha- have come. I mean, Michelle O'Neill, someone who's come from a family which uh, was very involved in the IRA, someone who's personally come a long way. You know, she was a pregnant teenage mother and is now the first minister of Northern Ireland. You know, so all of this important sort of symbolism. But then not to understate the difficulties that there are and you know there are still going to be problems um, 
one of the reasons that Rishi Sunak, he's reported he was going to visit, uh, I think it was ambulance uh, workers in Northern Ireland as soon as, soon as he got there, um, is that there are uh, real problems in terms of funding things. When you haven't had uh, the Assembly up and running for, for two years, as you mentioned, um, you know, there's big problems. There's a lack of money. They're trying to get things up and running again. There have been strikes in the public sector. So while it's all sort of symbolically optimistic and, and quite hopeful, there are still quite a lot of problems beneath the surface. Indeed. Uh, I think it's been well documented that the, the NHS in Northern Ireland is in an absolutely parlous state, the, the waiting times and what have you. And this is covered in the FT as well. It says cash crisis waits for Northern Ireland restored executive. A UK lifeline of £3.3 billion um, may not be enough to fund public sector pay and essential services. And this automatically sets the, the government on a are not necessarily in a course to failure, but the challenges are huge. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, they are hoping to get uh, this money. You know, they're going to get, as you say, £3.3 billion from the UK, the Westminster government, to try and fund things better. But if you, you know, you just haven't, the executive is meeting for the first time today. You just haven't been able to run things locally. And so although, um, you know, Michelle O'Neill saying, you know, this is a fight we're going to have to fight together, uh, we can do better public services, um, this is the kind of thing that that really matters as well as, you know, the, it's not just people aren't caring about the arguments necessarily about Brexit and trade and all of the things that have um, held the Assembly up. But, you know, people in Northern Ireland, same as anywhere else, really care about having a health service that works, having a public sector that works, having an education system that works. And those are going to be the real challenges. Uh, speaking of things that works, there's a, a story in the front cover of The Times today which talks about... Um, an aircraft carrier, or what is it, the Queen Elizabeth, that's supposed to be taking part in NATO um, exercises in the next couple of days. Uh, it's broken. <laughs> it is broken. Um, the, the British Navy has been having quite a lot of problems in this regard, and this is picked up in the Financial Times on its uh, front page as well. So uh, we have two aircraft carriers. One of them is supposed to go up to uh, the Arctic Circle for NATO exercise Steadfast Defender. And yes, it's not working. Um, the yeah, This is apparently highly embarrassing uh, for the Royal Navy, and particularly because we've had a lot of discussion over the last couple of weeks. There was a big report from uh, the House of Commons Defence Committee. They had a report called Ready for War? Question mark, to which the answer was uh, no, not entirely. Uh, they have problems with um, you know the state of repair of, of a lot of these ships. And um, yes, because particularly in the Red Sea as well, I mean, this is a separate exercise. This is a NATO exercise. But uh, the Americans have been pointing out that, for instance, when uh, British destroyers were helping out with the attacks on the, the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea, um, the destroyers weren't able to destroy the targets that they wanted to because the British destroyers could only aim at things that were on the sea or in the air and not aim at uh, land targets in Yemen. Is that, uh, is so that deliberate this, or accidentally? Well, accidentally. I think maybe that was not what they were designed, not the kind of operations they were designed for. Perhaps they didn't think we we're going to... Of course, there's always an argument going on about you know defence spending, particularly with uh, a budget coming up. But yeah, these kinds of incidents seem to be happening uh, more often than, it, than is useful. And this is something that's raised by the FT, which is it just says, you know, the last minute change of plan because the HMS Queen Elizabeth with its broken propeller will not be going um, on the NATO exercise, but will be but re will be replaced by HMS Prince of Wales, which apparently has also had the same problem about two yes. years ago. So. <laughs> uh, and, it's the, and it's the international perception of what once was thought to be one of the greatest militaries in the world and is now beset by very 
not just genuine, but also very public failures and very public weaknesses. Yes, and it is embarrassing, and it's embarrassing for the military. And they've got all of these problems, so not only the problems of uh, logistics and the problems of money, but they are one of the real problems that this House of Commons report found was that retaining staff in the military was really difficult as well. They were, they're finding it really hard to recruit enough people and more people are leaving than, than they can persuade to, to join the armed forces, which in the long run is, is quite a big problem. Let's move to a story in the New York Times also widely covered is the uh, the issue of Senators release border deal to unlock Ukraine aid but fate remains certain. So this is this slightly well this very entangled narrative isn't it that uh, the Republicans in the United States will not allow money to be released to help Ukraine until the government the administration clamps down on border security again in Mexico. Yes, and you wouldn't think, of course, that these two things are related. But in the way of you know trying to unlock U.S. Uh, budgets, they, you know they they often are. And you know although Senate Republicans and Democrats have unveiled this bill, which they call a compromise bill, worth 118 billion dollars to you know spending to crack down on unlawful migration. They've had three months of talks nearly every day, bipartisan group trying to trying to work on this, um, but particularly. Particularly, the Republicans in in Congress are saying, "Well, no, we're not we're not going to do this. Uh, we're not going to put this bill through." Uh, so, despite all of this work that has gone into, you know, trying to do something about the border crisis and securing the border, which many people find, you know, some people say it's not go far enough. Other people, particularly Democrats, are saying this is much too strict. It would effectively say that if more than five thousand migrants a day had crossed uh, over in a week, they, they would effectively close the border down. Um, so this is, you know, this is pretty, this is pretty, some pretty tough measures here. But, you know, for their own political reasons, um, a lot, a lot of the Republicans are saying, no, we're just, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let that happen. They're saying that uh, Josh Hawley, for instance, saying this is an open borders bill, um, and it, it's not going to do what they want it to do. But again, you know, this is all tied up with the bigger politics of it. And obviously, uh, you know, the election. Well, this is it. Let's talk about the politics briefly. Um, the fact is, is that Migration is such an enormously hot topic for the United States, as it is indeed absolutely everyone. I was just reading reading a poll saying that 27% of Americans approve of Joe Biden's handling of immigration. More than twice as that say they trust Donald Trump. Uh, Whereas if you look at what happened under Trump's administration, apparently in 2019... um, that numbers began to rise under, under Donald Trump. And I think we all remember that, that, that a quarter of the arrivals were um, ended up in detention facilities and local jails couldn't keep up with what was going on. And so people were just released. So this is an issue that Biden can't politically keep a handle on, can he? No, it it is really um, difficult because, you know, it's not doing things that the Republicans want to do, for instance, you know, building the famous wall, for instance. Um, this just seems to be, you know, no matter how much money you want to try and put into this problem, it, it seems that his opponents don't want to don't want to go ahead with even some of the measures that they might actually agree with. But, you know, it's just difficult to see how you know, how you do this if you can't actually get a bipartisan agreement on an issue that's this important. It just shows, you know, where American politics is is stuck. Finally, you wanted to talk to us about an article in The Times about uh, one of the world's most wonderful living artists, Gerhard Richter. They found a mural. Well, they've known about the mural in Berlin, but only now has uh, the artist said, yes, you can 
uh, you can uncover it. Yes, this comes from um, Gerhard Richter's very early days uh, in Dresden, and he painted this mural in the German Hygiene Museum in 1956 when he was 24. And as he had to at the time, because he was obviously growing up in in the Old East, it was a very sort of socialist, realist uh, mural. However, um, because he then fled to the West in 1961, before the Berlin Wall went up, um, he was perceived to have committed a crime of fleeing the Republic by the East Germans. And then they later painted over uh, the museum. So they, the East Germans said this it lacked artistic significance and painted it over in 1979. However, it turns out that Gerhard Richter himself didn't actually think much of it either. Um, and he said his, he believed his, own, his real work only began after he settled in West Germany. And they wanted to uncover this in 1994. And he said, no, just leave it under the, under the layer of paint. Um, but now he's saying, OK, then you can, you can go back, you can scrape some of the paint off the top, but they're only going to expose part of it to show sort of, you know, how history had, had overlayered things, which I find really interesting. And I think that will be uh, really be fascinating to see. It's lovely, the, the way that paint tells stories. Definitely. Terry Stiasny, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.33. A quick look now at what else we're keeping an eye on today. Turkey says it's ready to supply drones to Egypt after the two countries normalised ties following a decade of division. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is set to travel to Egypt on February the 14th to meet his counterpart Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. It'll be his first visit since Ankara and Cairo upgraded relations by appointing ambassadors last year. President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador has been re-elected to office. The former mayor of San Salvador, who describes himself as the world's coolest dictator, claims to have won 85% of the vote in a presidential election. He's been credited with cracking down gangs and turning El Salvador into one of the safest countries in Latin America. Canada has extended a ban on foreign ownership of housing, saying it's aimed at reassuring Canadians worried they're being priced out of the market. The country's facing a housing crisis, which some are blaming on an increase in migration and a drop in construction. And Parisians have voted to triple parking rates for SUVs in the French capital. The proposals were approved by more than 54% of voters, although the turnout was 6%. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We turn to Azerbaijan now, where presidential elections will be held on Wednesday, amid reports of an increase in repression and torture. Human rights activists, political opponents and anyone who speaks out against President Ilham Aliyev is a target. Well, the elections are being held after Azerbaijani troops recaptured the Nagorno-Karabakh region from Armenian rebels that controlled the enclave for more than three decades. And to tell us more about what's going to be happening on Wednesday and the significance is Joshua Kuchera, a journalist who covers the Caucasus. A very good Good morning to you, Joshua. Good morning. So tell us what's happening on, on Wednesday and indeed why is it happening at all, some are asking. Well, so yes, as you said, there's presidential elections on, on Wednesday. Uh, there's a seven-year term uh, for president in uh, Azerbaijan. There's there's absolutely no drama about the outcome. Uh, the winner will be Ilham Aliyev, who's been president for 20 years now. Um the kind of interesting, maybe the only interesting thing about this election is that it's in fact happening this year rather than next year when it was uh, uh, scheduled to take place. Uh, and the fact that they moved it up uh, has been the source of some speculation. Uh, as you mentioned, last year, uh, Azerbaijan uh, managed to retake uh, the, the all of the rest of the territory that Armenians had occupied. 
since the 1990s. And this has been framed um, officially as a little bit of a, a celebration of that or a marking of that. Or now that we control all of our territory, we should have presidential elections and all of that uh, across all of our territory. Um, analysts, though, will say that it's related to the, the retaking of the territory, but not in the way that the, the government is explaining it. Um, I think there's been a lot of, uh, even though Aliyev himself is not challenged significantly by anybody, uh, there's still been a kind of rising social discontent. The economy is, is stagnant in Azerbaijan, and a lot of people are wondering what uh, 20 years of uh, Aliyev's rule has have gotten them. Um, and they're hoping that, however, though, the, 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 the military victory last year was quite popular, and that gave uh, Aliyev a, a bit of a boost. And I think uh, a lot of people suggest that uh, pushing up the elections until now will allow them to take advantage of that um, kind of post-war euphoria and uh, hold off uh, the, the social content uh, for, for somewhat longer. There is no real opposition here, is there, with, with you know, challenges who are who are not necessarily real genuine challenges and That's and indeed right. there is a fear that anybody who does raise their voice is, is silenced well there's there are at least a couple of genuine opposition parties uh in azerbaijan they are boycotting the election which they also did the last time uh and yes this is being taken <clears throat> the elections being conducted under you know, even by Azerbaijani standards, an increasingly repressive environment. Uh, there's been a wave of arrests of independent journalists. Uh, some of the last independent journalists who were left uh, operating in, in Azerbaijan, a uh, very good investigative uh, news website. A lot of their journalists have been have been arrested. Um, and so, you know, and also the, the government in, in the last year or two years has passed uh, new laws on political parties and the media, like increasingly uh, uh, cracking down on the space that for for any dissent. Uh, so yes, it's very um, it's very difficult now to to do anything uh, on on any level to to oppose the government. And internationally, the Azerbaijani president is is pushing against large uh, large international bodies, isn't he? I mean, there's reports that he wants the Azerbaijanis to perhaps leave. Uh, the Council of Europe or the European Court of Human Rights. And um, we've had Josep Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, expressing worries about the fact that Aliyev is now, President Aliyev is, is now making territorial claims against Armenia, not just against Nagorno-Karabakh, but against the country itself. I mean, Azerbaijan under Aliyev is positioning itself in a, in a very precarious place, isn't it? Yes, I mean, this this uh, kind of spat with uh, Western countries uh, has been going on for a few months now. Uh, I mean, we, we, you know, Azerbaijan's foreign policy always kind of goes in waves. They do the same thing with Russia often. They have good relations for six months and then bad relations for six months. It kind of happens with the West, too. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to tell how permanent this is, but it's maybe one of the more um, kind of serious breaks with the West that they've had in, in some time. Um, yeah, for various reasons, they've had these kind of disputes with France. Uh, they complain that France, most of these disputes are rooted in um, the fact that Azerbaijan thinks that they're being treated unfairly uh, in terms of the, the international mediation of the conflict. They say that these bodies have become uh, pro-Armenia. Um, you can debate whether that's the case, but that's uh, Azerbaijan now feels very confident uh, in that it doesn't need these things. 
you know, leaving the Council of Europe and the, the Parliamentary Assembly, the, the European, of, European, European Court of Human Rights would be quite extreme steps, something that they haven't done before. Uh, but Azerbaijan these days is, I think, feeling more like it do- doesn't need these things. Joshua Kuchera, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. in Copenhagen, which is where we head next. The 62nd edition of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair, SIF, has been taking place in the Danish capital. Monocle Radio has been there broadcasting in our pop-up cafe studio where Monocle's Tom Webb sat down with Camille Jaillon, who's, conf- who's the founder and designer of Holistic, the first French certified sustainable brand in the luxury ready-to-wear market. Tom began by asking Camille to talk about the brand. So it's a French brand, Sustainable Luxury. We use only organic materials to create the collection. So it's very high-end and we're really, really committed to sustainability. Now, when you say organic materials, it may surprise people Mm -hmm. what that actually consists of. With all the greenwashing, it's very important for me to prove that we are really organic. So we use certification called GOTS, Global Organics Textile Standard, means that we use 99% of our fiber are organic. So it's a proof of to be really sustainable. This is an audio medium, but I'm staring at the most beautiful dress, and I really do mean that. Now, this is organic sustainable material, but it's a fibre. Yes, it's very interesting. So it's called Lyocell. It's a wood fibre that we use wood chips to create this fibre. And the United Nations support my work since the beginning on this fibre because it uses less water, and we actually plant a tree to create this fibre because it's coming from the wood pulp. So it's very interesting. And I think today is very important to use this kind of materials instead of synthetics and polluate the planet with this microfiber plastic, you know. So I actually worked for many brands before, luxury brands, and I was very disappointed on there's no sustainable fibers at that time. It was like six years ago. And I couldn't find a brand that I feel is fashionable but sustainable at the same time. I wanted something very elegant and to prove that we can have both and we don't need to look like a not trendy at all you know we can be trendy and sustainable in some of the pictures you have the most beautiful dress and it's silk yes. now it's special for a number of reasons i'm going to let you tell us why yes. it's a really nice poetic way to say we don't kill the silkworm we don't kill the butterfly because it's an artisanal process it's in india that there is a community who actually respect animal lives. So we call it in Sanskrit harimsa. Harimsa means cruelty free. We create a hole in the cocoon, then the butterfly can escape. So it takes more time to produce this kind of silk and it's more expensive, but I think it's also more, more respectful of the environment, which was very important for me when I started the brand uh, in 2019. So traveling there, meeting the community, sewing their craftsmanship. I was very in love with that. I thought, like, why there's no brand using PCL today? I think it's a beautiful way to start a sustainable brand. And then I add Lyocell, and then I add upcycle fiber from LVA Metrols, and then I add organic cotton, organic lion, organic hemp 
everything that is organic. That's uh, really the concept of the brand. Because for me, my definition of sustainability is a product that disappears with time and doesn't stay, you know, like synthetics. Something really biodegradable. And then the end product, it's fair to say you have a one-off piece. Like one of a kind. Oh, you do, yes. Yeah. Well, they, depending on the prints, can be in a different area in the, on the piece. And it's very art pieces because, uh, you know, sometimes I collaborate with uh, artists and painters. And most of my prints, they are made by artists and they do the canvas before. And then after, we use that for the textile. So there's really a link between fashion and art. I think the best example of the link between fashion and art that I personally found is in your work is the use of origami. Can you explain how you do that? Yes. So there is a special piece in my collection in organic cotton and on the sleeve you have some shape of origami and I send this origami on paper to my atelier in Portugal and they reproduce that on the sleeve. So there is really a use of hands in my work and I love doing that way because I feel today is very hard to find luxury products with really high-end fibers. It's super hard. And I believe when you buy a product, uh, you want the product to stay in your wardrobe for a long time and should not be uh, something you you, you wear two, three times and then you're tired of it or it's not good quality so it doesn't stay. Today, with everything we know about climate change and everything, I think it's super important to invest in a smaller quantity of garments, but better quality. And also thinking of the human side, checking how it's made, where it's made, and with which fiber, I think it's crucial. It is. It's very important. Now, you are based in France, but you do have a working relationship with Portugal. How does that work? Yes, well, I produce most of my collection in Portugal, some in France, and a little bit of knitwear in Italy. So it's very close to France, and it was very important for me to to be environmentally friendly, to avoid too long distance. And also, why Portugal? Because they have an amazing, they do an amazing job. The price is not so high compared to France, for example. And I can also travel and meet them often. You know, I'm traveling maybe four times per year to meet them. I know all the name of the girls there. There's a really close and human side of it, you know, and... That's why I really like also to do more limited collection and to have something like more human compared to the big, big company. Because then more you grow, more it's harder to follow up and to see if they are well paid, if they are happy and if uh, the conditions are good to produce garments. So it's very important for me to be able to travel and to meet them and to know them. That was Camille Jayon, who's founder of Holistic, talking to Monocle's Tom Webb in Denmark. And you can hear from our partnership with the Copenhagen International Fashion Week on our special editions of Monocle on Design. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk about the art market. Amma Rose Abrams, arts journalist, joins me now. A very good morning to you, Amma Rose. Good morning. You're on a plane this week going to Marrakesh. 
I am, and I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Not just for fun, but for work. For work, because it's 154 Art Fair, which is a contemporary African art fair that people might know from Freeze Week. There's one in New York, and there's one in Marrakesh. And it's kind of all the kind of art fairs are kicking off, um, but they're kicking off in the hottest places. So last week we had the um, India Art Fair in uh, New Delhi, which apparently went extremely well. Sales, real international crowd, and um, really, really amazing response as people kind of understandably flocked to Delhi to uh, take in everything that was happening there. So here's the question. Are people following the money here? I think people are following the money, but they're also following the growth. Like, there's a kind of opportunist angle to it where... um, and there's just this obsession with newness in the art world. So it's like, oh, God, I haven't been to Delhi, haven't been to India, I need to check out the scene. It's been bubbling over there for some years. Some really great galleries that always show at Freeze, like Nature Mort, for, existent, for, for example, pardon me, and um, other galleries kind of based out of the region. And so people, I guess, make the bonds and then start to travel over when they have fairs there. It sounds like an exciting time for art. Yeah, it is really, because it's kind of, it's very exciting to see art that you see in museums kind of, kind of around the world where it's made and get to meet people where they live. I mean, obviously, it's all very much of the art world, international jet set vibe, but if you kind of separate it out from that, it's just fascinating to see where everything's made and where everything comes from. Let's uh, focus on uh, the latest exhibition at the Royal Academy here in London. It's called Entangle Past and it's a complicated and quite difficult exhibition, isn't it? It is. It really is. I mean, it opens as you walk into the courtyard at the RA, you've got... um, uh, the the first supper it's called by Tavara Stram, which is a reconstruction of the Last Supper, but with figures um, from history, uh, from Black history, really. I mean, so you have Harriet Tubman, you've got Marcus Garvey, and you have some kind of lesser known figures as well that are kind of Strand's kind of practice is always like he find, he's got this um, uh, encyclopedia and he finds Black figures from the past that maybe haven't had the exposure that he thinks they deserve and he will make an encyclopedia entry for it and he'll build an artwork around them and it's a mixture of characters from that practice or people not characters and so that is um it opens like that and then we have like work by joshua reynolds you've got isaac julian you've got ella natsui you've got these kind of giants of past and present and um it starts, I think, with a lot of portraits rather than work by artists from the diaspora, from the Af- African diaspora. And it culminates with a kind of amazing room of um, figures by Labena Himid, which is just, I think, has been stopping people in their tracks. People really absolutely love this room. Why? And there's another room which has a kind of an Ellen Atsui, an Ellen Gallagher, a giant Frank Bowling, a, a John O'Confra work. And in a way, you're standing in a room of these fantastic artworks and there is a conversation going on there, you know, politically, curatorially, but you're just standing in a room full of great art, really. Um, let's talk about the Venice Biennale happening this year. Um, the curator, Adriana Pedrosa, the, the Brazilian, has has decide, has told us what's going to be in it. What's going to be in it, Emma Rose? 
as 322 artists, which for... for yeah. My jaw has just dropped, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I know you can't see me, but uh, I just, I just, I think my face just went wow. I could. That's read, a lot. It's a lot. It's a huge amount, and I could read you a list, but it's not, you know, famous quote unquote names. It's really like a really interesting spread of artists from uh, the global south. And I mean, he is based in Sao Paulo. He's director of Maspi, which is a museum which kind of deals with a lot of indigenous artists, and. This is it's going to be kind of an educative experience for a lot of people, critics and visitors alike. It's going to be stuff we don't really see a lot exhibited in Europe. And I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, what is it when you mean it's going to be really interesting? And why, why? I mean, when you have such a huge uh, collection of artists coming together, one does wonder how you're going to actually get some sort of coherence or cohesive theme going. I think that's a big challenge with the Biennale Central Exhibition. You know, it's every time it is that challenge of is it going to hang together? Is it just going to really overwhelm people? And we'll see how he does. The last show was so popular, but it was a hundred less artists, few artists. So we'll see what it's like. But I think what I anticipate is he's going to be the theme is foreigners everywhere, and the, the and I think I anticipate something which is going to talk about feelings of otherness, feelings of um, themes of colonialism, post-colonialism, and just presenting artists from regions that we don't really see a, a lot in the West. I'm Rose Abrams. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. And finally, the Grammy Awards took their customary marathon journey last night. So let's look at last night's winners with Kate Hutchinson, music journalist and host of the Last Bohemians podcast. Very good morning to you, Kate. Hi, Emma. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Uh, but not quite as well as the likes of Taylor Swift. Tell us, she was, she's, she's been the one hitting the headlines, hasn't she? Absolutely. She has made history. I mean, th- there were predictions that this was going to happen and Taylor proved us right. She's uh, now the first, she's the first four-time winner uh, of the Grammy's Top Album Award, and she won um, the Best Pop Vocal Album Award as well for Midnight. So um, she's, she was having a great light, night last night. I hope she was uh, clinking the champagne somewhere until late, for sure. Um, and she's not just the, the, the only woman taking the, the awards this year. I mean, this as we were going into the Grammys, it was all going to be how are women going to be represented this year? And they ruled, didn't they? Because we have wins from, obviously we mentioned Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish uh, with, with her Barbie song, SZA, Miley Cyrus, all doing incredibly well. Yes. I mean, just if we just take the sort of the main um, award category, which is the Album of, year, of the Year Award, seven out of the eight nominees were women, which has to be some kind of record for the Grammys because, you know, the Grammys... There's been, this is the 66th Grammys, and, and they often do not get it right. So um, that was uh, one sort of aspect of it. Um, SZA, she did absolutely amazingly this year. She took home the best pop duo group performance, the best progressive R&B album, and the best R&B song on her record, SOS. Victoria Monet won the best R&B album. As you said, Miley Cyrus won for her smash hit Flowers. And Kylie won for Padam Padam as well. And then we must mention Boy Genius, 
which is the super group um, with three women, and they won three awards for their album, The Record, which was also produced by a woman, Catherine Marks. So women really were out on top this year, finally. Well, you, you mentioned finally, and some of the sort of slightly more cynical voices coming out of this, saying that, oh, Grammys, the Grammys finally get it right, but it, they've really taken their good time getting here. Yes. I mean, there was, there was a, a sort of... Um, terrible quote from a former now disgraced recording academy ceo in 2018 who told journalists backstage at the grammys that women really needed to step up for their representation at the show because men were just winning all the major categories um so if you sort of look at from then till now there's been a real sea change um which is brilliant i mean oh there's obviously still you know a lot of work to be done um jay-z for example this year there were lots of memes um flying around after his, he accepted a sort of, almost like a sort of lifetime achievement adjacent award and took his opportunity on the podium with his daughter, Blue Ivy, to say, well, actually, Beyonce, you know, so how, could, how could somebody who's the most decorated artist in the history of the award show uh, never won its biggest prize? And he was, of course, alluding to his wife, Beyonce, who last year at the 2023 Grammys, Renaissance won the best dance and electronic album, but again, not this very sort of garlanded album of the year award. Um, what's it like taking part in this? Because you've you've had to be a judge on in, in, a, in a section of the Grammys in the past, haven't you? No, not actually entirely right. Sorry, I've, I got asked to be, um, to apply to be a recording Academy member so that I could vote on one of the categories, one of the global um, album categories. And I was so excited to receive this um, this ask. But there was a catch. When I looked at the criteria that you needed to have to be a judge, you had to have your name. uh, You had to have 12 credits on albums, basically. So I would have needed to have um 12 sort of thank yous or maybe i've played the triangle or somehow been an executive producer on 12 albums which is as a journalist is pretty ridiculous and i think that it sort of illuminated to me um you know how sort of established you have to be to be part of the recording um academy and i haven't looked at the exact figures but i'm guessing you know there's a reason why in previous years things have skewed towards older older white men and um you know if there's a lack of diversity uh, issue, possibly, with their membership process. But I was very upset not to be part of it. No, maybe you should play the triangle a little bit more often. Kate Hutchinson, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for joining us on today's Globalist. And that's all the time we have to do for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Chris Chermak and Carlos Rabello, our researcher, Naomi Ekwe, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, more music's on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.